0: Amen. amen. All right, let's go Matthew chapter five. Matthew chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, I'll have the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. We also have some physical Bibles scattered around the room in the little racks beneath the seats. If you don't own a Bible of your very own, we would invite you to take that physical one home. The reason for that is incredibly simple. We believe that God uses His Word to uh, reveal Himself to His people, and listen, we we want you to know God, and we want you to to, uh, have a life that is uh, defined by Him, shaped by Him, uh, near to Him, and He uses His Word to bring those things to you, and so if you don't have a Bible of your own, you're at a disadvantage in those things, and so we can fix that today by sending you home with a cheap paperback Bible. It's that easy. All right. So, uh, Matthew chapter five. We're going to kick off a brand new series today. All right. And we're going to call it the Already But Not Yet Kingdom. Uh, Garrett did our artwork as always on that. And uh, just saying, if you need some design stuff done, the man earns his living that way. Find a way of doing that. All right. So, here's the deal uh, this series is way. <laughs> way shorter than our last major series. Uh, The last one took us like 10 months. Uh, We walked all the way through the major characters of the Old Testament and then spent some time in the New Testament. This one is going to only be about six weeks or so. It's going to lead us right up to Easter. But like I said, it's called the Already But Not Yet Kingdom. And so on the surface, that may seem like a contradiction to some. But I don't think it is. And I want to show you what I mean by that. Um, In Matthew chapter 4, towards the end of Matthew chapter 4, uh, we see this little thing right here. It says, and he, Jesus, went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming, Let's see if I can, there you go. The gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. And so Jesus is going around in this region that he would have called home, this this area that would have been familiar to him and local to him, and everybody around there kind of knows him. Jesus goes around this area and begins to do all kinds of things, but mostly we see him proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. So, so, So what is that? What is the gospel of the kingdom? Jesus, he he seems to teach in a way that's upside down from what what everybody around him thinks the world ought to work like. He begins to to unfold things and, and put things on display and they seem completely counterintuitive. They seem upside down to the way that most people would believe that the world should work or does work. But here's the problem though. Because Jesus is doing all kinds of things that, well, it kind of backs up his message. He seems to be teaching with an authority that no one else before him seemed to have. And a charisma that no one else before him seemed to have. But on top of that, he's also performing miracles. In fact, miracle after miracle after miracle, people are being healed of terrible diseases. People are... uh, All these kinds of things are beginning to happen, which tend to lend the proof that, well, Jesus is more than just somebody with a lot of charisma. Like, there's something that's backing up these major claims of the gospel of the kingdom. And so, chapter four ends by saying this and great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. So, Jesus is accumulating for himself gathering for himself this great crowd of people that want more and more and more tastes of this gospel of the kingdom that he keeps throwing out there. And so what I want to do is build a series off of everything that comes immediately after this. Jesus sees these crowds of people gathering around him. They want more and more tastes. They want more and more glimpses. And so in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, it says this. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them. So all throughout the the next couple few chapters of the book of Matthew, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, we get what we typically refer to as the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is going to sit down on this hillside. He's got this giant crowd of people following him. They're starting to see miracles. They're starting to hear him teach with authority. They're starting to to gather some energy and gather some momentum. And they're, they're wanting desperately to get another taste, just another piece of Jesus. And so Jesus sits down and starts to teach them. And... A lot of people will refer to the Sermon on the Mount by a different name. You may have heard it before. But a lot of people like to refer to the Sermon on the Mount as the King's Manifesto. That's an interesting name for something. What do we normally give the title of manifesto to? Uh, Usually it's some kind of political or social reform, right? Some leader or wannabe leader writes something that's supposed to stir the pot a little bit. And affect things from the outside in, right? But that's, that's not what Jesus does here. Jesus, he seems to believe that what a man is will be the biggest factor in what a man does. I'll say that again because it matters. Jesus seems to believe, no matter how many times he opens his mouth, Jesus seems to believe that what a man is will be the greatest component the cheap component in what a man does and so we look at Matthew 5 6 and 7 the Sermon on the Mount the King's Manifesto and we look at it with very specific lenses because if you want to get a picture of the mind of Jesus this is the place we ought to look because Matthew 5 6 and 7 is the biggest chunk of single teaching that we have of Jesus in the gospel accounts Now, there are other places where where he's got these big chunks of teaching, but this is the biggest. And so if you want to know the mind of Jesus, this is the first place we ought to look. See what I mean about the King's Manifesto? And so we're going to repeat this theme over and over and over again throughout the, 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 the series that we're going to be working on throughout these three chapters. But this is most immediately apparent chiefly apparent in a section of scriptures that we call the Beatitudes. And that's the very first thing out of the gate in the Sermon on the Mount. And I want to give you a little... Um, well, actually, let me, let's read verse 2 again. You want to control back there, Garrett? Matthew chapter 5, look, at with, me, uh, look with me at verse 2. And he, Jesus, opened his mouth and taught them, saying... Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the, people, uh, the prophets who were before you. Alright, so who's ready to be poor in spirit this week? I mean, that's what he says, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Who's ready to, to put mourning on their to-do list this afternoon? He said, blessed are those who mourn. I mean, didn't? I mean, isn't that, wouldn't that be valuable? Shouldn't we do those things? See what I mean about Jesus' teaching seeming completely upside down from the way the world's supposed to work? Over and over again in this little section, we see Jesus use the word blessed. So what's that about? It's the Greek word makarios. Makarios. It, It means blessed. Fortunate. How fortunate you are. Blissful, even. It carries the tone of an internal reality that can't be affected by external circumstances. Blessed are the poor in spirit. So, if upon hearing these things, our knee-jerk reaction is to go, well, that doesn't seem right, then we are only left with two possibilities. Either A, Jesus is crazy, or B, maybe the king of this kingdom knows more about how it works than we do. I mean, that's really the only two options, right? If our, if our knee-jerk reaction to hearing Jesus say, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the merciful, blessed are the, those who mourn, blessed are these, blessed are those, and if our knee-jerk reaction is to say, ah, that doesn't sound right to me, that sounds upside down, the world doesn't actually work that way. If our knee-jerk reaction is to think that, then either A, Jesus has no idea what he's talking about, or B, Jesus is the only one who knows what he's talking about. You following me? So how about... Just an idea. We walk through these claims and let the king spell them out for us. Sound good to you? Good. That's what we're going to do. I'm the guy with the face mic. Can we get back to that other? Hey, look at you. Hey. Oh, sorry. I'm going to let you do it. There you go. All right, so let me give you a gigantic hint. A gigantic hint to understanding the Beatitudes well. They pour into each other. To read the Beatitudes correctly, one flows into two, which make, creates the opportunity for three to happen, which creates the opportunity for four to happen, and so on and so on. But I'll give you an even bigger hint. The next thing is also true, because five, six, and seven mirror one, two, and one, two three, and four. You ready to walk through it this way? All right, let's look back at verse three again. And I'm done with the remote. We can let Garrett Who knows what he's doing affect the slides. All right, so what does verse 3 say? Blessed are the what? Poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Okay, so Jesus doesn't say blessed are the poor. He says blessed are the poor in spirit. So we're not talking about something material here, are we? We're talking about something spiritual. So what's the difference? We're talking about something spiritual. (laughs) That's the difference, right? We're not talking about material blessings here. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Those who in humility see themselves correctly before God. Those who in humility, specifically those who see themselves correctly before God. For those of you who know your Bible well, you you may remember the story of Isaiah in Isaiah 6, right? Right? uh, Isaiah all of a sudden is given a vision of a throne room of heaven. He sees God sitting on his throne. Do you remember what his reaction is? Woe is me. And he hits the deck. Isaiah is given a picture of God's bigness and his smallness. And he is humbled before the Lord, right? Jesus says that there is a an internal blessedness to those who see themselves rightly in light of God. There is a fortune for those that are humbled before the Lord. Now, need to draw a distinction. Do not mishear me. I didn't say who are humble before the Lord. Humbled is a different reality. In fact, there's a massive difference, right? To be humble for the Lord is to have kind of this external uh, kind of idea, that this, this external thing that you put before people and maybe even try to put before God. To be humbled before the Lord is to be emptied in His presence. Very different reality. Jesus isn't talking about some paltry little generic attitude. He's talking about those who have gotten a. A true glimpse of God's holiness and his bigness and his infiniteness, and gone, oh no. Woe is me. They have seen their sinfulness and the separation that, that puts between them and an infinitely sinless God. They have come to the point where they deeply understand just how big the separation is. They are humbled and and each one of these beatitudes has a little blessing attached to it this little promise that comes at the end of it so what's the one that comes with verse 3 here blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the what kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of god so follow me here jesus says that those who inherit the kingdom are those who have first been humbled by the great king can you do that yourself So all of a sudden we're starting out in the Beatitudes and we're, we're outside of the category of you mustering up the strength to pull something off, aren't we? Those who inherit the kingdom are those who have been humbled by the king. No one struts into God's kingdom as if they've accomplished something. No one, not you, not me, no one. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Okay, so what's next? Verse 4, right? Builds from number 1 into number 2. Blessed are those who what? Mourn for theirs, for they shall what? Be comforted. So if Jesus was speaking about a spiritual reality rather than a material one while ago, do you think he's changed the subject? He's talking about a spiritual reality again. So what are they Mourning. They're mourning their sin. When when you see God correctly, you begin all of a sudden to be very clear about how terrible your sin is. Think back to Isaiah, right? What goes on there? What was me for I am a man of unclean lips. He immediately recognizes how sinful he is. Uh, Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 verse 10 I don't have it on the screen but I'll read it here for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret whereas worldly grief produces death so what's Paul saying there he's saying that when we correctly see the weightiness of our sin we truly feel remorse for it and repentance is produced so so Isaiah Gets a picture of who God is. He immediately goes, "Uh uh-oh. He's immediately made aware of his sinfulness and the separation between him and God. And he wants desperately to be rid of it. Right? He will seek out any way possible to be rid of it to separate himself from his sin, for godly grief produces repentance, right? But here's the upside-down nature of this. Because when it comes to sin, we, we live in a world that has a different angle with dealing with it, don't we? I mean, what do what we... What do we in our culture tend to do when our junk is brought to light? Smile, deny, and deflect, right? I mean, isn't that the, isn't that the MO? Whether it's a politician or a church leader or a businessman, no, no matter what category or what realm of society we're talking about, that's the way we tend to handle our, our, our big messes. Smile, deny, and Deflect. Get your attention off your sin and focus on something or someone else for a little while. Right? That's the way we handle that. But Christ the King says that in His kingdom, in His kingdom, we are to be humbled by our sin. We are to empty ourselves because of our sin and we are to ultimately repent for our sin. Completely backwards to the way the world tends to work. Like some of y'all may have seen the, the Houston Chronicle series of articles that came out this last week about uh, sexual abuse and misconduct and the way churches handle that absolutely terribly. Like if you haven't read it, you need to read it because we need to be so infinitely better at that. The, The world we live in says smile, deny, deflect, right? But what does King Jesus say? Own that, feel remorse over that. Empty yourself of that. Repent of that, right? We don't deflect. We own it and let Jesus do something about it. Like it might be the strategy of some great PR department somewhere, but it's completely upside down from Christ's kingdom. Jesus calls us to see our sin and to mourn it, but that's not all he says. What he says is the promise that comes on the heels of those who mourn their sin. They shall be what? Comforted. By whom? By Jesus. By the king himself. Those who mourn their sin. Jesus tells us that in his kingdom, those who see their sin and are truly repentant of their sin are drawn close by the king. Is that good news or bad news? It's good news. It's good news. Because as they are drawn close to the king, remember Isaiah's story again? Right? Isaiah sees his, his great need and what happens after that? God sends an angel with a burning hot coal from the altar to cleanse him of his sin, to atone for his sin. So as we are drawn close to the king, he also cleanses us of the sin that we're mourning for. Jesus keeps going. What's the third one? It builds off the first two. Verse 5, blessed are the what? The meek, for they shall inherit the earth so if you didn't know, I'm sure you probably do. You're all a bunch of small, smart people. But meek is not the same thing as weak, right? Those are not, those are not synonyms. The, word that, the Greek word here for meek that was used in the first century was often commonly used for that of taming or breaking a cult. I mean, think about that picture for a second. When, when, you, when you tame a cult, you're not taking their strength away. What are you doing with it? You're focusing it. You're you're putting it in a certain parameter so that it can be actually used for something good, right? Instead of being wild and all over the place, you're focusing that strength for a purpose. Another word that we could probably use here is teachable. Blessed are those who are teachable. Back when we walked through the Ephesians series several months back, probably a year ago now, when we looked at Ephesians 4.2, Paul says there that the life and the character of a follower of Jesus ought to be marked by three things. Humility, gentleness, and patience. Those aren't, those aren't weak character traits. Those are signs of maturity. It's, it takes strength and restraint to be gentle and patient with those you don't think that deserve it. Right? To think that somebody owes a slap and instead... To, be, to show them grace that is not a weak character trait that is a strong character trait and Jesus says that those who are humbled before God who in sorrow repent of their sin and become those who are usable for God's purposes in his kingdom they are shaped into what God would have them to be and what's the corresponding blessing? they inherit the what? God gives them a part of the kingdom. Those who belong to the king are made vice-regents of the king. The king will not entrust his kingdom to the brash, to the unteachable, to the heavy-handed, but to the teachable and the patient. Those who see God correctly and mourn their sin appropriately are Formed, conformed into the image of who He is calling them to be, and they become the type of person that He entrusts His stuff to. We gotta move quick. What's next? Verse 6. Blessed are those who what? Hunger and thirst for what? Righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. There is such a thing as a holy ambition. There's definitely an unholy ambition, but there's such a thing as a holy ambition. So allow me to give you one of just the greatest life hacks ever. I mean, just, just hear me. Chasing after the things that God says he values tends to be blessed by the God who has the ability to bless. I mean, just process that for a second. Chew on it. Like you, you want to succeed in, in the things that, that are most valuable in life? You, you want to be successful in this and, and that? When you chase after the things that God says he values, he tends to bless that chasing. So, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, what does Jesus say that they will be given? Satisfaction. That's a good word. Satisfaction is a good word. If you're really hungry for something, if you're really thirsty for it, and you get full satisfaction, don't you just rest in that moment? Sit back deep into the chair and go, hmm. If you're truly hungry for something, is there anything better than full and final satisfaction? You want righteousness? You go chasing after it. He'll make you more righteous. He'll make you more righteous. He said, he has promised exactly that. Pursue it and watch what he does with it. What's next? Verse 7. Blessed are the what? Merciful, for they shall receive. So, remember how I told you that that the next ones, uh, 5, 6, 7, 8, build off the ones that are uh, the first set of four? So, seven mirrors number one. So, blessed are the what? Merciful. Blessed are the merciful. So this mirrors number, uh, number one here. It says, those who, who see God and see themselves correctly have received mercy from God, right? And when you understand the depth of mercy that you have received from God, what are you inclined to give? And Jesus says here that when you give mercy to others, when we show mercy to others, we receive more mercy. It's a self-feeding cycle. That sounds like a fun day. What about the next one? Verse 8. Blessed are the what? Yeah, this one mirrors verse 2, or number 2, right? Uh, Those who see their sin and in mourning repent of their sin are comforted, right? But the obvious question that comes out of that comfort is what do we get that comforts us? We see God. We get to see God. God's comfort is not seen in a trite pat on the back and a get well soon card. He draws us Close to himself. We get his nearness. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Those of us who are, who are Christians in this room, don't, don't we long for the day when that's finally fully reali- realized? I mean, I do. What about the next one? Verse, verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called what? Yeah, this one's tied to blessed or the meek, aren't? isn't it? It takes a sizable amount of grace and maturity to overlook fault done to you in order to pursue peace instead. It takes a sizable amount of grace and maturity. But those who have locked down on the understanding that justice and vengeance and retribution doesn't belong to them, but instead belongs to God, they can show restraint no matter what's been done to them. They can pursue peace today despite whatever others may be guilty of because they understand that, well, it's not their role. Blessed are the peacemakers. And Jesus says that those people are the ones who get to be called sons of God. And then finally there's the eighth one. Look at verse 10. I know it may seem like nine, but I promise these are tied together. Verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So this one's tied to number four. Those who pursue righteousness in this world, I have news for you. You're going to be persecuted for it. You will, in fact, to live consistently with the first seven beatitudes will just about always result in persecution. Just about always. Why? Because the true righteousness of God's kingdom is antithetical to a lost world. It's nonsensical in every way. And it will be reviled. And it likely will be attacked. Count on it. But what does Jesus say? He says, in that moment... In that moment, how fortunate you are, how blessed you are, because yours is the what? The kingdom. They treated his prophets the same way. Your reward will be great in heaven, and you will get to see God's face. So forget how the world says the world works. They don't know. They don't know. The author of this world, the author of this kingdom, the king of this domain knows better than they do. While the world says that specific things will get you ahead, that the strong or the happy or the materially successful people are the ones who are truly blessed in this world, the king of this kingdom says otherwise. He says that the kingdom of God is for even you. It's for even you. So blessed are you when you are humbled and when you mourn your sin and when you're broken for God. Blessed are you when you pursue righteousness and you show mercy and play the role of peacemaker. Blessed are you when, you, when the world reviles you for being exactly who God had, would call you to be and shapes you into being because the kingdom belongs to even you. Blessed, fortunate, internally without the effect of external circumstances. How fortunate. Blessed you are. So, what do we do do with this information? Well, Jesus has a little more to say about it in the next few verses, actually. Verse 13, look at that with me. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? All right, so oftentimes this, this text of Scripture is preached from the negative angle, right? All right uh, they, uh, people will point to how the church has lost its uh, distinctiveness, it's lost its saltiness, and, and how we're not who God has called us to be. And I don't think that's an incorrect way to teach this passage of Scripture. I think I've done that before in, in my history. But I, let me speak to it from the, from the positive side of things, right? When the church, the the gathering of people who are humbled by God's holiness and repentant of their sin, the gathering of people who are shaped by God and used by Him for His purposes, when that group of people is what God has called His people to be, man, it'll dumbfound the world. They don't know what to do with it. It'll be attractive. Now, don't don't mishear me. The, The gospel will always be a stumbling block. Like, like there, there are going to be things about Jesus dying for our sin in our place and raising from the dead that are always going to be a hard pill to swallow for people. You can't undo that. But the church, when the church is who God is calling His church to be, that'll be a light to people who have spent their entire lives in the dark. It'll be attractive. And the end result is verse 16. What did that say? In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may, what? See your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. They will see your good works and give glory to your Father. There's a theological question that a lot of people wrestle with sometimes. It's a pretty simple one. Why does God do things this way? Right? I mean, It's his world. He could have set it up however he wanted it to. I mean, he's in charge. He gets to make the rules. Like, why didn't he set it up in such a way that those who belong to him are the ones who are blessed with riches and ease and comfort and health? Like, that that would seem like a smart way to do that to me. I mean, wouldn't God be giving glory if people saw the prosperity of God's people? The answer is that in that system, it's possible for us to love him in order to get his stuff. And that's not so glorifying. This is essentially the the ultimate and defining characteristic of the word of faith movement. They treat God as some genie in a lamp in order to get his stuff. Do these things in order for God to bless you. Don't you want that God? Of course you want that God. He gave me a BMW. He didn't. But this is the defining characteristic of the word of faith movement. He's nothing more than a tool for them to get what they actually love, prosperity. But God has set up His world to work in such a way that when we love the giver more than the gifts He can give and does sometimes give, well, that means the gifts can come and go, but the giver never does. And if the gifts come and go, but the giver never does, we still win because we get God and when the watching world sees us love Jesus more than anything he could ever give us, the glory of Jesus is magnified. When the things come and go, but Jesus is always there, and we say, He gives and he takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord, Jesus is seen as supremely good. And the end of all these things that they will give glory to God. The already but not yet kingdom is turning the world upside down, and it will one day soon be fully realized. And I, I don't know about you, can't wait for that day. Can't wait for that day. But I'm also excited to look at what we're going to look at for the rest of the series because, well, he's got more to say. The King's Manifesto moves forward. So how do we respond to God's word today? Well, if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, your response is to press into God. and You you do that by leaning into who he reveals himself to be and leaning into who he reveals you to be and then doing something about that. A sinner in need of grace. Anything other than that is to see you both incorrectly. Everything flows out of those two realities. See him correctly, see yourself correctly, and then watch what he changes in you. I'm going to pray, we're going to sing, we'll have a couple of leaders up front here to talk and pray with you if that would serve you this morning. If you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, man, I'm glad you chose to hang out with us today. There's probably other things you could do on a Sunday morning. You're here, cool. You can respond to God's word today too. You do that by meeting Jesus. That, that, That coal that Isaiah had touched his lips from the altar, I don't know if I want that route for cleansing of sin. Jesus owned the pain himself. He died on the cross in our place to pay the debt that we owe for our sin, to bridge the gap between you and a holy God and those who call on him in faith, they belong to him. So today we want to give you a chance to, to call on him. I'm going to pray, we're going to sing, we've got some other stuff planned after we're done, but right now, let's all respond to God's word. God, you're good to us. Thank you so much for the scriptures. Thank you for the Sermon on the Mount. Thank you for being a king who knows how to run the perfect kingdom. If I were king, things would go poorly and they go poorly fast. But you sit on an eternal throne. And your throne and your glory and your power know no end. And even though none of us in this room, myself included, have any business being a part of your kingdom, the king has made a way. You're gathering a people for yourself. A people who correctly see who you are and who they are. Who are humbled by the king and mourn their sin. Who are shaped into who you would call us to be. Who pursue peace and righteousness for your name's sake, not ours. And who in this world will probably be persecuted for it, but there's coming a day when your reign will be fully realized. And we will celebrate forevermore. So God, for those in here who know you, would you draw them close? Help us see any sin that, that distorts our view, that pulls our eyes off of you as the king and onto lesser things. For those in here who don't know you yet, would you change that this morning? Would you make yourself known to some people today? Like Isaiah, who we cry, woe is me and hit the deck but then just as quickly receive the grace you offer. You are good. And in your name we pray, amen.